welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this podcast episode. I'm recording this in early March 2019, so we're almost uh, towards the end of the first quarter of 2019, and I hope that the the year has started off really well for you. My start of the year has been fairly full. Uh, I've had some strategic planning work that I've done with organisations uh, at the very start of the year because many people are putting together their plans for 2019. I've also had a very enjoyable two week holiday in one of my favourite countries, New Zealand, with my partner Nikki a few weeks ago, and. In addition to the work that I've been doing with conference speaking and workshops and strategic planning, I've also been working diligently on my new book, Disruption by Design. So the manuscript has been sent to the designer. I've just been reviewing what I hope is the last draft of it, ready to go to print. And I hope to have it in my hot little hands come April or May. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I'll be sharing many of the ideas from that in my newsletter, blog, future episodes of this podcast, webinars, and of course, in the work that I do with clients. So in today's podcast episode, I want to give you an overview of the ideas in the book. I won't be reading out the whole book in detail, but what I'll give you is the introduction, which will set the stage for disruption by design. And then I'll give you an overview of each of the nine main chapters. And I'll explain the principle behind each one. And then a little bit of the conclusion. So my goal is to give you the principles behind the ideas in the book. We don't go into the 50 plus case studies or examples or stories in the book. I won't get to the fine detail of giving you the the practical action steps that you can take for each of the ideas, but I will give you enough that you can think about it, reflect on it, and perhaps put some of the ideas into action in your own team or your own organization. So I hope you get some value just from this overview. Two decades ago, Harvard scholar Clayton Christensen, also known as Clay Christensen, wrote the book The Innovator's Dilemma. And in the book, he described an idea that has since been called the most influential business idea of recent years. And it has also led to more excitement, fear, optimism, pessimism, skepticism, hope and debate than any other recent business idea. So what's the idea? The idea is Christensen's theory of disruptive innovation or as it's commonly called now, disruption. And of course, we hear about dominant businesses and entire industries being disrupted. For example, you've probably heard of these. Netflix, with online streaming videos, has disrupted the blockbuster model of DVD rental stores. Uber, with a superior mobile app and a shared economy idea of anybody being a driver for hire, has disrupted the tightly controlled taxi industry. Spotify, with its all-you-can-eat model of music subscription, has disrupted iTunes, which in turn disrupted music CDs. Uh, Airbnb, which allows anybody to rent out their spare bedroom, has disrupted accommodation. Sometimes disruption completely wipes out an industry, such as CDs and DVDs, and sometimes it carves out a large chunk of market share, as with taxis and accommodation. And often it's not just a disruptive force, but a destructive force as well. And the mere thought of it strikes fear in the hearts of leaders at existing well-established businesses in an industry. So is your industry ripe for disruption? 
And we hear now that just about every industry has been disrupted or is in imminent danger of disruption. And this is obviously most apparent for digital information products that replace their physical equivalents. So things like books and CDs and DVDs and film cameras, newspapers and magazines. But it also affects businesses that relied on their location for business. And they're now facing competition from online providers such as accountants, graphic designers, travel agents, printers and, of course, retail stores. Then there are the businesses and jobs that are being replaced by better software and by artificial intelligence, AI. Things like financial planners, uh, translators and interpreters, personal assistants, recruiters, publishers, stockbrokers, insurance brokers and journalists. And although software is the fastest growing area of technology, and not surprisingly because it's easy to digitally manipulate ones and zeros, new physical devices are also disruptive. Things like drones and 3D printers and self-driving cars and robot bricklayers, self-service supermarket checkouts, self-driving tractors. And finally, let's not forget the entrenched established industries that are still limping along with outdated inefficient systems that haven't fully been disrupted yet, but they're slowly moving along that path. They're being disrupted around the edges, things like healthcare, education, government. Now, many of these examples of disruption don't strictly fall into Clay Christensen's original pretty narrow definition of the term disruptive innovation, but that doesn't matter because it's widened the conversation and more people are talking about it now. But there is something else that does matter and It matters because it leads to unnecessary fear and doubt and a backlash to the idea of business disruption. As I said earlier, Christensen's idea was called disruptive innovation. And now most people call it just disruption. That's punchier, sexier and has greater impact. But unfortunately, it's also a very different concept. See, the original idea was about innovation. But we've distorted it so much that few people think of innovation when they hear the word disruption. Disruption is something that happens to you, and it's usually negative. It comes from nowhere, it shakes your foundations, it strikes with the force of a hurricane, and sweeps aside everything in its path. Innovation, on the other hand, is something that you do, and it's far more positive. It's about creativity, it's about implementing good ideas, and it's about collaborating to make the world a better place. It's all about change. The one thing that disruption and innovation have in common is they're both about change. And change is a natural part of life. Everything we do is about change. Sometimes we create change, sometimes we respond smoothly to change, and sometimes change catches us by surprise and we react poorly to it. Change has always been with us, but the pace of change itself is changing, and that's what catches people unawares. In the past, when change was much slower, we had more time to see it coming, to plan for it, and to adapt to it. And we could use the same strategies that always worked for us in the past and be pretty confident that they would still work. Even if they needed some tweaking, we had time to evolve and adapt them. But that's no longer the case. Change is coming thick and fast now from every direction. And those old strategies don't work anymore. You can't just tweak them to work. You need something entirely different, entirely new. For example, if I throw a rocket to you from a distance, you've got strategies to avoid getting hit. You can duck and weave and jump out of its way. But if there's a crowd pummeling you with a barrage of rocks coming from every direction, there's just no way you can duck, weave and jump fast enough to to be able to avoid them all. You need a different strategy. Maybe run, retaliate, hide, get in first. And that's the real difference between change and disruption. Disruption is change, but change at such a rapid pace that we need new strategies to handle it. 
you can't evolve your way out of disruption. So, disrupt less and innovate more. To succeed in the future, embrace the spirit of Clay Christensen's original term, disruptive innovation. See, this is the key difference between disruption and innovation. Disruption is when it happens to you. Innovation is when you do it yourself. And it's a big difference. It's the difference between being reactive and being proactive, being at the mercy of others and being in control, being a victim and being a leader. Innovation is disruption, but with you in control. In other words, it's about disruption by design. So, innovate from the inside out. You disrupt yourself, but in a positive, progressive way that positions you better for the change that's happening in the world. See, the thing is that the world has changed. The question is, have you? Think about it this way. Broadly, most organizations go through three phases of growth. The first phase is the fast growth startup phase. So you see a problem in the world and notice there are enough people with that problem to make it worth building an organization to solve that kind of problem. And obviously, you staff the organization with people who have the skills and resources to solve that problem. So in this phase, the first phase, which is the strive phase, you all work really hard and strive to succeed, and you do succeed. Now, in the next phase, the world has moved on. Customers are facing an entirely new set of problems, and they expect, obviously, a completely different set of solutions. Now, if you're still solving the same old problems in the same old way, your organization is no longer relevant. You haven't become dumber, but you have become less relevant. So in this phase, you're doing all you can just to survive. And if you survive, you're lucky, but many organizations don't survive. And if you continue to do the same things you've always done, you won't survive either. The organizations that survive and in fact thrive now solve a different set of problems. And it doesn't matter whether these organizations even existed in the old world. In fact, it's often an advantage if they didn't because they aren't carrying all the extra baggage that comes with solving the problems of the past. So, there's nothing new about these three phases of organizational growth, strive, survive, and thrive. But again, what's changed is the pace of change. In the past, when the world wasn't changing as quickly, you had time to adapt, adjust, and evolve your organization to solve new problems. Now, you need to move much faster and disrupt yourself or be disrupted. Okay, it might sound easy when I say disrupt yourself or be disrupted, but what does it mean? How do you do it? How do you do disruption by design? Well, broadly, there are three things you can do. And these are three broad steps in designing your own path for the future. So first of all, foresight, then talent, then action. So let's talk about that. So first you need the skill of foresight so you can explore the external environment and understand it more clearly. Then we look at your talent, the people that you enlist to bring along for the journey. And finally, you take action so you can continue to make progress efficiently and effectively in a constantly changing landscape. So let's look at these three areas. And we're going to look at three things you can do in the area of foresight, four things that you should look at when you're looking at talent, and two really important principles when it comes to taking action. Let's start off first with foresight. So foresight is a skill of looking into the future and using that for doing your planning for now. So think about this as a funnel. There are three things that you can do. First, open up, then scan wide, and third, narrow down. Open up. Don't be constrained by the past when setting your course for the future. 
They see this common myth that experienced business leaders are dinosaurs from a bygone era, old white males who only knew one way to lead and that way doesn't work anymore. So, the theory goes, it's, it's inevitable that they're going to be disrupted by younger, more diverse, more tech-savvy new thinkers. Or that's the way the story goes, but it's not true. Now, obviously, it might be true in some cases, but there are many experienced, established, well, let's say, old leaders who do have the right mindset to lead now, and they're more than willing to adapt to the new way of doing business. The problem isn't their intent. It's their assumed competence. It's not that they don't know a lot. They absolutely do. It's just that some of the things that they know aren't true anymore. They used to be true, so it's natural to believe they're still true. But they just aren't. The future belongs to possibility thinkers who see opportunity where others see risk and threat, who embrace change rather than fearing it, and who act even in an uncertain world. And there's no reason you can't be one of those possibility thinkers, but it might mean letting go of some of your old beliefs. Learn from the past if it's serving you to build for the future, but otherwise, let it go. Now, this involves a shift in mindset. Yes, it is all in your mind, but that doesn't mean it's easy, and there are two reasons for that. First, it means letting go of some of your beliefs, and that's easier said than done. So when you discovered that Santa Claus was a you know, a fraud, you also discovered that he was never real. But many of your other beliefs are based on hard, concrete, fact-based evidence, and it's not so easy to admit that they may not be true anymore. Second, there are real costs and risks and consequences to making these changes. You can't just discard your assets, fire staff, ignore obstacles, destroy entire product ranges, or transform your organizational culture overnight. The smart, savvy, disruptive startup entrepreneur has an advantage because she doesn't have all those responsibilities, accountabilities, and stakeholders breathing down her neck. And in this competitive race, she's fast, trim, and nimble, and you're not. She's racing out of the blocks while you're still in the change room, putting on your running shoes. But just because it isn't easy to change your mindset doesn't mean you shouldn't. You can't afford to give her too much of a head start. So act now. Okay, that's opening up. The next thing you can do is scan wide. So look wider and further for opportunities and threats. Instead of limiting your options, scan wider and look for more opportunities, knowing that you can then make smart decisions later about how to filter and prioritize them. Now, there's a problem with trying to find lots of options. And the problem with trying to find as many options as possible is knowing when to stop. And the only way to be sure you have the best option is to find every option. But of course, that's impossible. As you find more and more options, you eventually reach the point of diminishing returns, where it's not worth the time and effort to keep searching. So what most people do is they lean too far in the opposite direction and they stop too soon. It's part of a natural bias. We want to simplify rather than complicate our decision making. So we tend to stop after finding too few options. So how do you find the right balance between too few options and too many? Well, one idea is to set an arbitrary number. We'll stop after 10 options, for example. But the problem with that is it, it is arbitrary. We could also turn to mathematics and find what's called the optimal stopping point. So there's a strategy that says you decide how much time you're going to spend, evaluate everything you find in the first 37% of the time, then settle on the very next option that's better than all of those before it. But that assumes that all options are equally likely to be the best. And that's usually not the case. That's not how real life works when we're choosing from a set of options. We can ignore options that are totally implausible and focus on the options that are more likely to be worthwhile. But 
we need to be careful. See, your definitions of totally implausible and worthwhile might be different from mine. In particular, many people fall into the trap of working from their past knowledge and implicit assumptions. And this is where established organizations operate differently from disruptive organizations. Because disruptive organizations work from what's plausible and worthwhile in the future, not the past. Next, narrow down. Make better decisions faster with the benefit of foresight. This is all about decision-making, and decision-making is one of the most challenging responsibilities that leaders face. At the same time, it's also one of the most common and most important responsibilities. A single decision you make might make or break the future of the team or the organization and could affect the lives and livelihoods of hundreds or even thousands of people. And even if it affects just one life, yours, it's important. And decision-making is not just a task, but a skill. And just like any other skill, you can assess it, improve it, and develop it over time. Unfortunately, very few people treat it as a skill. Most leaders are completely unaware of the way that they make decisions. As a result, their decisions are biased, and they're unaware of the bias. Unfortunately, for many experienced leaders in established organizations, the bias is towards the past, not the future. Leaders of disruptive organizations, on the other hand, start with the future bias. So, when you're making decisions, make decisions thinking about it from the future, not from the past. And there's a vast and growing body of knowledge about how to make better decisions. And you'll never learn everything you need to know to make better decisions. But if you start thinking from the future rather than the past, your decisions won't be constrained by only what worked in the past. For example, you'll make more choices. Uh, you'll think about the benefits of change rather than the cost of making a change. You'll think about many different scenarios rather than a single scenario. You'll look to get consensus with people rather than making hierarchical decisions. And you'll look for real evidence to justify a decision rather than going from an instinct that used to work in the past. So as you hone your decision-making skills, be especially careful about the way that you assess decisions. For example, if I asked you, what's the single most important decision you made in the last 12 months? Most people will choose the decision that had the best outcome. So the most successful project, hiring a particular person, firing a particular person, and so on, based on the outcome. But that means you're judging the decision based on hindsight, which is a poor way of assessing your decision-making skill. That's like taking all your money to the casino, placing it on 16 on the roulette wheel, winning and saying that was a good decision. Now, by all means, review the outcome of each decision so you can reflect, learn and improve, but don't use the outcome and as the main measure of the quality of the decision. Hindsight is too late. The best leaders use the benefit of foresight to make better decisions faster in an uncertain, ever-changing world. Now let's move on to the second element that helps you create disruption by design. And this is about talent. This is about people. And not just the people in your team, but more broadly, the people in the world that can help you. Think of this as four concentric circles. And there are four elements to this. First of all, you. So it starts with you. And then expands out to your team. And then expands out to your customers. And then expands out even further into the rest of the world. So let's look at those four areas. So the first of those is step up. This is you. Stand for something that matters to you and makes a difference to the world. So in the past, your leadership was defined by your role, 
your title and your job description. And that gave you authority. And your employees followed you because of that authority. Now, it's no longer enough just to have authority. People expect you to be an authority as well. And this is sometimes called your personal brand. This is the crucial element that sets the best leaders apart. You've always been expected to keep current and build your expertise, but that's not enough to create a personal brand. To do that and to become an authority, not just an expert, you must also share that expertise. So it's not enough to just be a learner and then an expert, but to be an authority, you have to be able to share that expertise as well. And that is about building your personal brand. Now, building a personal brand gives you many benefits. You become known as the go-to guy, the go-to gal. You build an identity that's separate from your current job. You guide your own career path. Decision-making becomes easier because it's all aligned with your brand. And you attract and keep the best people. And that last reason, attracting and keeping the best people, is one of the most important. When it comes to talent, it all starts with you. That's why we start talking about talent by talking about you first and your personal brand. Like it or not, you already have a personal brand. It's the way that other people perceive you. But if you haven't invested time in actively building it, it will be shallow and bland. I must say that some people think this idea of a personal brand is overrated because they already have decades of experience, they've already got a tight-knit network, and they've already got a well-established place in the organization. Now, all of those things might be enough for the short term, but they aren't enough for long-term success. And if you want to be truly disruptive, which is exactly what we're talking about, embrace the idea of building your personal brand. And this is an ongoing process. It's not a one-off project. You build your brand one step at a time. You look for small things that you can do regularly, frequently, and consistently. The next thing you do is you look at your team. And there's an I in team. Leverage the unique skills and talents in your team. If you're leading a team or organization in this new world of work, you're going to face different responsibilities and challenges than you did in the past, and even than you do now. And the biggest change is the shift to individual power and influence. We used to say, there's no I in team, but that's no longer true. There is an I in team now because your team members have more influence, power and access than ever before. And they're going to bring those assets to work to assist you and your organization if you make it attractive enough for them. And the best people want different things now. Many leaders don't know what they are. So... The best people stay for a while, they hope to be attracted and inspired, but eventually they get disappointed, they get pulled by a stronger magnet, and they leave. And most leaders and managers don't know how to lead teams in a disruptive, fast-changing world. And this is true even if you're an experienced leader. Dare I say it, especially if you're an experienced leader. What used to work doesn't work anymore, and you need new strategies to lead and manage effectively. Um, as you may know, for many decades, the Gallup organization has been conducting employee engagement research, and in the 1990s, a generation ago, their research showed that employees valued things like superannuation, flexible holidays, and other similar benefits. Now, these are still worthwhile benefits to offer, but they've moved down the priority list now. More recently, the research into what makes up the best workplace on earth has identified a completely different set of factors that employees value now. And if you compare them with a list of desirable benefits from the previous generation, the, the, the differences are stark. So people now want things like diversity, they want more authority, they want to be able to develop their own talent and use their talent, uh, they want work that gives them meaning, they want you to uh, value and build good judgment. 
So established workplaces evolved into their current form because of things like hierarchy, location, and traditional attitudes towards work. Newer organizations don't start with those same constraints, so they can create the sort of workplace that they think is most likely to attract the best talent. If you're an established leader, it can be a real challenge. It might require profound shifts in thinking, especially for experienced leaders who've always done things the old way. I like to think of this as an analogy with computer games. In the 1980s, computer games like Pong had pretty basic graphics, just a few black and white pixels moving around a screen. Now there are gaming devices like the Xbox that deliver such compelling visuals and three-dimensional effects, they look almost lifelike. The problem is that there are many leaders today who feel like Pong thinkers in an Xbox world. It's a classic case of imposter syndrome, where you might feel unqualified or underqualified to lead and manage the modern employee. And it can be disconcerting and challenging when the leadership techniques you learned and honed over decades just don't get traction anymore. So you do need to shift your mindset to attract, motivate and keep the best people to lead you into the future. But it's not just about you and your team. You can look further as well. You can look outside. So the next thing to do is to think about customers on your side. Bring your customers inside and involve them earlier in your business. See, in the past, there was a clear wall between you and your customers, with your team inside the wall and with your customers outside it. And you engage with customers, but only in a very narrow band of interactions, marketing campaigns, sales meetings, feedback surveys, customer support, and of course, the sales transaction itself. But that isn't enough anymore. In our social, highly connected, information-rich world, the most successful organizations break down this wall and let customers in. And that's a better way to be customer-centric now. So if you think about a typical product or service development cycle, it goes through broadly these five phases. Choice, you decide what products and services to offer. Marketing, you promote them to the market. Sale, you sell them to customers. Service, you offer after-sales service. And follow-up, you ask for feedback so you can improve. Now, this applies to both the established and disruptive organizations, but disruptive organizations act differently at each stage. There's nothing wrong with the techniques that established organizations use, but they tend to treat customers as outsiders. Disruptive organizations also use some other processes that include customers more and make them feel like partners, not just outsiders. For example, rather than just offering a range of products, they invite their customers into the design stage of the product development. Instead of only looking for referrals, they also invite customers to invite other customers, prospective customers, to sample the same experience that customers get. Instead of only doing transactions, they also get customers to participate in creating the product itself. Instead of only offering after-sales support directly, they create a forum where customers can help each other. And instead of waiting till the very end to ask for a review, they ask for feedback as early as possible so they can act immediately based on that feedback. So if you've traditionally kept your customers at arm's length, it might seem strange now to try involving them as partners in your business. But give it a try. Be creative with generating ideas, choose a few of them, and then ask your best customers to take part in a pilot project. You know what? You might be surprised with the results. There's one more area of talent that you can look at, and this is even beyond your customers. Ask the world. 
reach out to a world that's willing to help and you can tap into endless talent, skills and expertise. See, some of the resources you need are already inside your organization, but many of them aren't. And every organization needs to look beyond its four walls for some of the resources. But the way you do this has changed. In the past, you turned to a few trusted partners for those external resources. You looked at them first, you vetted them carefully, then you invested time building solid, reliable relationships with them. And that would take some time and effort, but it was worthwhile. Now, there's nothing wrong with strong relationships with trusted partners. In fact, they offer a lot of benefits, and obviously, they're clearly preferable to weak relationships with untrusted strangers. But those are not the only options available to you now. In our social, mobile, and highly connected world, the best people to solve your problems could turn up in the most unexpected places, especially because technology gives us a means to reach these people and our trust economy gives us a new way to filter and choose them. Disruptive organizations don't rely only on the old methods to find the resources they need. They find resources in many other ways now and often in ways that seem contrary to trust and reliability. There is a whole world out there that's willing to help. If you reach out to them, you can tap into endless talent, skills and expertise. For example, people will share more now. The old model was to own as many resources as possible. Now you share rather than own so you can remain nimble and flexible. You might use freelancers. Instead of dealing only with a few preferred suppliers, disruptive organizations use freelancers for specific skills in narrow areas of expertise. You might do crowdsourcing. Disruptive organizations know they can find expertise everywhere and they cast their net far and wide to increase their chance of finding the right expertise. You build communities. Disruptive organizations still value close partnerships, but they're also willing to sacrifice the closeness of the relationship for the diversity of a wider community. And finally, they go global. Disruptive organizations recognize that the best new relationships might be at the edges of their existing networks. Now, many experienced leaders struggle to make this change because their experience tells them that a few strong relationships are better than many loose connections. They're used to tight control, so they feel uncomfortable and unfamiliar with loose collaboration. And even if you're willing to make the shift, your organization might not make this easy to put into practice. And sometimes they aren't deliberately blocking you. It's just this is unfamiliar territory to them. Your HR department might not know how to manage, for example, outsourcing to freelancers. Your legal team might demand strong contracts rather than loose letters of engagement. And your own team members might feel threatened when you engage outsiders for some of your projects. So don't be surprised when other people throw these obstacles in your path. Be willing to work with them to enable this new kind of work. So we've looked at foresight and we've looked at talent, but nothing gets done unless we take action. So that's the third element in creating disruption by design. It's action. And there are two clear principles here. And this is about productivity, performance and progress in a fast changing world. And there are two things we need here to be able to start well and then to keep going. So let's look first at how you start out. Set your direction and take firm action, but plan to be flexible along the way. It's rare that you, your team or your organization will be successful purely by being lucky. 
Now, luck plays a part in many success stories, but luck alone rarely leads to success. The most successful organizations set goals and make plans. They still do this, but they use different strategies now for those processes. The old processes for strategy, goal setting and performance just don't work in our fast changing world. Fortunately, science has discovered what successful people do differently now so they can still set clear goals and achieve them even in a world of constant change and permanent chaos. In a nutshell, do short, highly focused activities with clear objectives. You'll see this in modern processes such as design thinking, rapid prototyping and lean projects. They all have a bias towards short projects and fast action. And these are the fundamental differences between the old and new styles of goal setting and planning. Now you don't have to turn your entire organization inside out and reinvent it as a lean startup company, but it's useful to understand the processes that new organizations use so you can adopt them to work for your projects as well. And as I said, in a nutshell, this is about short, highly focused activities with clear objectives. In other words, it's about getting things done fast. It's not about diluting your goals because it's too hard to achieve them now because our world's changing. It's about breaking them down into smaller chunks, 90-day projects. It's being realistic, looking at the positives and negatives, about building momentum, being resourceful, and then making sure that you take action. And finally, it's not enough to set goals. You also have to be good at how you keep going. So thrive in chaos and work together to overcome obstacles because obstacles are inevitable. Even when you set goals and create a plan, the world doesn't stay still until you achieve those goals. You'll be constantly nudged, shoved and battered from the outside. So you need coping strategies to ensure you stay on track. Now you might hear about the importance of resilience, the ability to bounce back when you get knocked down. But the problem with resilience and with being only resilient is that you end up by being reactive. You can be the most resilient person, team or organization, but you're still at the mercy of what's happening around you. Instead of just being resilient, build change management into your strategy. So you thrive in chaos rather than being battered by it. Now this is an unusual idea. It happens so rarely, there isn't even a word in English for it. In 2012, author Nassim Nicholas Taleb invented the word anti-fragile to describe it in his book of the same name, Anti-Fragile. So something is anti-fragile when it thrives on chaos. In other words, far from just resisting change or recovering from it or being resilient, an anti-fragile person or team actively grows and thrives in a chaotic, ever-changing environment. Now, very few organizations are truly, completely anti-fragile, so don't get too caught up in this precise definition. Instead, consider the simple things that you can build into your process strategy to be a little bit more anti-fragile. For example, habits. Instead of forcing yourself to use discipline and willpower, create habits that make progress automatic. And instead of needing to find the motivation to act on your goals, attach them and the progress to things that you already do regularly. Be gritty. Instead of relying on passion alone to pull you through the tough times, build your grit so you can push through. So when you think about the fragile organizations, they use words like focus, determination and hard work to achieve goals. These are all good things and this strategy might have worked in the past, but it's too vulnerable to changes in the external environment. In contrast, 
Anti-fragile words are softer, they're a little bit more flexible. Things like habit and trigger and grit and progress. That's the approach you need now because external changes are inevitable. The path to your goal is not a straight line and any successful strategy now must accommodate a crooked path. So you build habits and triggers so you can create flow. You then use grit and measure progress to remain flexible when things change around you. And then you seek consensus to get buy-in so that you can fly when things change. So we've talked about the three elements that create disruption by design. We talked about foresight, talent and action. And I know we've only talked about them briefly, but I hope you have enough to think about what you can do in your organization to make sure that disruption happens from the inside out, not from the outside in. Before I finish, let me ask you a question. Suppose there's a heap of sand sitting on the table and I remove one grain of sand from that heap. Is it still a heap of sand? Well, the correct answer, the obvious answer is yes, it is. What if I removed another grain and another and another? Well, still yes. I could remove thousands of grains of sand and it would remain a heap of sand. But here's the thing. Eventually, we would just have a few grains of sand scattered on the table. And that's obviously no longer a heap of sand. But when did it stop being a heap of sand? There's no right answer to this question. Clearly, because we start with a heap of sand and end without one, there must have been a point where it changed. But there's no obvious way to identify exactly when that happened. And it's very hard to imagine that just one grain of sand made the difference between heap and not heap. And this puzzle dates all the way back to ancient Greece, but is just as relevant for us today. Because it's exactly how disruption works in most industries. Disruption rarely happens overnight. It usually happens one grain of sand at a time. And the signs are clear if you're observant enough to notice them and you're willing to act. Uber didn't disrupt the taxi industry by swooping in with some magical new technology. The technology was readily available, but the taxi industry chose to ignore it. The same applied to banks being disrupted by fintech, traditional real estate agents being disrupted by online portals, and Kodak being disrupted by digital cameras. In fact, Kodak invented the first digital camera. The same applies to your business and your industry. It's easy to shrug off the one loyal customer who switches to an online competitor or the few customers who choose the competitor's product because they offer app-based customer service or the team member who leaves to join a smaller organization with a stronger sense of purpose or the startup company with a new business model that's only making a tiny dent in your market now. Don't ignore these individual grains of sand disappearing from your heap. Otherwise, you might wake up one day and discover you no longer have a heap of sand. Now, you can't prevent every grain of sand from slipping through your grasp. But don't be complacent and assume they're just the exceptions. They might just be the early warning signs of major changes ahead. So be proactive and take active steps to keep building your heap. Jack Welch, the former CEO of General Electric, said it best. If the rate of change on the outside exceeds the rate of change on the inside, the end is near. So, accept that change is a new normal. Don't wait to be disrupted. Disrupt yourself by design. 
So that's an overview of my book, Disruption by Design, which is coming out soon. It might be published by the time that you listen to this, but it might not be. But either way, I hope you've got enough from this podcast episode, listening to an overview of the nine main principles that go behind Disruption by Design, that you can take some ideas and put them into practice in your team or your organization. I'd love to chat with you about them. So if you'd like to get in touch, please email me, gihan at gihanperera.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found something valuable for your personal and professional life. And if you did get some value from it, I would love it if you could do me a favor and give me a review and a rating in the iTunes store in the podcast area. And that helps to promote it to other people as well. And if you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, then check out my speaking topics and workshop topics at gihanspeaks.com. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, go to gihanperera.com where you can find my blog, my newsletter, my podcast, videos, and my free webinars series. They're all free and they're all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team, and of course yourself, that you can become fit for the future. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit gihanperera.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.